Hello and welcome to the Village Church Podcast. My name is John and we are glad to have you join us. We work to deliver our most recent preaching content to you as soon as possible, so let's get into God's Word together. Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you today. Good to be gathered and worshiping the Lord. What a taste of what we will do someday together for all of eternity, praising our Savior. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is John Collins, and I am an elder here at the village, uh, and it's, it's good to be with you today, so, so welcome. Uh, as I've had opportunity to preach here on Sundays, we've been working through Paul's epistle to the churches at Galatia. This morning, we're returning to the book of Galatians, so if you would, please take your Bible and find your way to chapter 2. If you need a Bible this morning, we have them available on the back table. Uh, Please grab one if you need it. Uh, They are there to be taken, so don't be bashful. If you or someone you know needs a copy of God's Word, uh, it would be our honor to see you take one and read it. Be in God's Word today. While you're finding your way to Galatians chapter 2, I want to say this. It's been a number of weeks since we were last in Galatians together. I think it's been 12 or 13 weeks now. So if you were not with us last time we were in this text together, or if you simply need to review, the three sermons so far from this series are available online. Uh, I'm not going to spend a great deal of time today reviewing the text, except to connect the dots where appropriate. So if you missed the previous messages, they're available. You can see me or Ryan back at the tech table, or honestly, if you see any young person here, they can probably show you how to find it on your phone. So Uh, With that, we're going to jump right into our text today, Galatians chapter 2. Lord willing, we're going to work through all of chapter 2 today, so would you join me? And let's let's read our text today, Galatians chapter 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had run or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, So that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment. So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. 
For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith and not by works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, this morning, as we come to your word, Lord, I pray that you would speak to your people. Father, that you would use my feeble words. Lord, that you would intervene and that you would speak. Father, without you, this is nothing but a pep talk. God, speak through me to your people. May your will be done and may your people grow in their understanding of your word. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I've titled today's message, Justified and Crucified. In the latter half of chapter 2, the Apostle Paul will get to the heart of the book of Galatians. Uh, the central vein, if you will, which flows through this entire epistle, and that is justification by faith. There is no doctrinal matter more essential to Christianity than that of justification by faith. It is the very heart of the gospel, and it is the heartbeat of the message that Paul is bringing. We'll spend a portion today on that topic specifically, but as is our usual fashion, We'll start at the beginning of the text and we'll simply work through it together. So as we begin, as we look at the opening chapter, chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is continuing the defense that he began in chapter 1 regarding his ministry and the message that he preached. Chapter 2 begins as a continuation of Paul's previous defense that he had in chapter 1. This isn't a brand new thought. This is a continuation. We know that the chapters and verse markers are helpful, but they don't always simply uh, bring a new topic. So remember, Paul is defending himself against the circumcision party, also known as the Judaizers, those false teachers who had snuck into the churches in Galatia after Paul had departed from there, and who were destructively teaching the Gentile believers that they must be circumcised 
and adhere to the Jewish dietary and ceremonial laws in addition to their faith in Jesus in order to be saved. These false teachers were undermining Paul's teaching and even casting doubt among the the Galatians as to whether Paul really was even an apostle. So Paul began his letter back in chapter 1 with these statements. By telling the Galatians that he was an apostle not from men or through men but through Jesus Christ. Because many of them were falling for the false works-based gospel of the circumcision party. Paul accused the Galatians of turning to a different gospel that was no gospel at all. Remember that in chapter 1? The apostle had reminded his readers that the gospel he preached them was not man's gospel, for he received it by revelation from Jesus Christ, the Lord himself. Also in chapter 1, Paul had stated that after Christ appeared to him, remember the Damascus road, that he, Paul, didn't go up to Jerusalem and consult with the other apostles. After Christ appeared to him, he immediately went to Arabia. And we presume he began his teaching ministry there after Christ appeared to him and gave him that message. And Paul had stated that after those three years in Arabia, he did go up to Jerusalem for 15 days, but he only saw Cephas, that is Peter. Peter had two names, Cephas, that is Peter, and James, the brother of Jesus. And then after those short 15 days, Paul went on to Syria and Cilicia, where he again preached the gospel. Okay, so now continuing into chapter 2, Paul continues that defense. Paul says that after 14 years, he went up again to Jerusalem. And this time, he took Barnabas, a Jew, and Titus, an uncircumcised Greek, with him. Now, there is some debate as to whether this 14 years Paul speaks of is 14 years from his conversion on the Damascus Road or 14 years from when he originally went up to Jerusalem for the the short 15 days with Peter and James in Jerusalem. But what is important here is that neither side of that, uh, that debate makes a significant theological difference. Whether Paul went to Jerusalem 14 years after his conversion which would make it about 11 years after his first visit to Jerusalem. He spent three years teaching in Arabia. Or whether it was simply a full 14 years, the point the apostle is making here doesn't change either way. His point is this. Paul, the apostle, called and sent out by God with the good news of the gospel, had not had any significant contact with the other apostles in Jerusalem during the first decade or more of his ministry. Paul reminds his readers that he had been serving in gospel ministry for a long time and his ministry was well established long before he went up and presented himself and the message he preached to the other apostles. Remember, Paul is an apostle because of God and not because of men. So why does Paul now go up to Jerusalem after these 14 years? Well, look at verse 2 of Galatians chapter 2. I went up because of a revelation... And set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had run in vain. Paul goes to Jerusalem of his own accord. It's worth noting here that Paul had not been summoned. He did not go up because he had been requested to appear before them uh, in council. The apostle goes up 
and appears privately before those who seem influential. That is, the spiritual leaders, the apostles, the disciples, perhaps even the elders at the church in Jerusalem. And he presents to them the revelation which he received and which he has been preaching all this time. Namely, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 2 says he did this in order to make sure that he was not running or had already run in vain. Now we can safely presume that the Apostle Paul did not have any serious concern that his message, the one that he received from Jesus Christ and had been preaching for all this time, was false. If he did, he would not have waited 14 years to go to Jerusalem. By this time, Paul had been preaching for well over a decade, right? And there was fruit in his ministry. No, Paul appeared before Peter, James, and John, those who seemed influential, presenting his message as a further affirmation that the gospel he preached was the one true gospel and was the same one that was being proclaimed by the other apostles. By going to Jerusalem, Paul seeks to gain credibility, supporting his statement that he preaches the gospel. By being able to say that his gospel message is affirmed by the church in Jerusalem and by the apostles and by the disciples, this would further confirm the message that Paul preached was not man's gospel and would help dismiss the claims that the Judaizers, that the circumcision party are making that Paul's message and Paul's ministry are not legitimate. In verse 3, we read that it says, when Titus went with them to Jerusalem, he was not forced to be circumcised. The English Standard Version, which is uh, what I'm reading out of, translates this Greek word here as forced. Titus was not forced. But most other translations translate this word as compelled. So Titus, a Greek, a Gentile, Someone who is brought up outside of the Jewish faith. I I hope we understand that today. When the Bible says Gentile, that means anyone who is not a Jew. It's everybody else. So Titus, a Greek, a Gentile, someone outside the Jewish faith who is a believer in Jesus Christ but is not circumcised. The scripture says he was not forced or even compelled to be circumcised by the apostles in Jerusalem. This is an important thing for us to note. It speaks volumes in support of Paul's gospel message. So on one side, you have the circumcision party who are saying that Gentiles must be circumcised and must be under the law, right? You must have faith in Jesus and you have to obey all these rules. And on the other side, there was the early church. There were the apostles. There was Paul who were saying that the gospel is by faith. It's not by rules. It's not by law. And Titus goes up, and Titus is not compelled to have to be circumcised. Well, this supports what Paul has been preaching. Because the gospel message is not about man's ability to keep the law or to keep the law. Rather, it's about Jesus Christ fulfilling it perfectly in man's place. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 in the Sermon on the Mount... Christ Jesus our Lord says this do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them 
Christ fulfills the law perfectly because we can't. So Paul knows this. Peter, James, and John in Jerusalem know this. And for any of them to have suggested that a Gentile believer like Titus would need to adhere to the law would fly in the face of everything that the good news of the gospel stands for. And they didn't. At its root, this is what Paul's battle against the Judaizers, against the circumcision party, is. And Paul's message gains substantial position when the apostles in Jerusalem agree with him. They accept Titus as a fellow believer and a co-heir with Christ. And they don't make any distinction over him being a Gentile, them being Jews, him not being circumcised. They are circumcised. Let's look at our text again. Let's look at verses 4 and 5. Paul says this is why he and Barnabas and Titus went to Jerusalem. Because of these false teachers, the, the circumcision party. And what does the Apostle Paul say? He says this, We did not yield, not even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved. These false teachers crept into the church to spy out the freedom believers in Christ have. And Paul says he did not yield ground on this matter, because to do so would go polar opposite to the gospel. You have these false teachers coming in and saying that uh, these new believers need to follow these rules like we have for hundreds and hundreds of years. You can't just waltz in here and just believe in Jesus. But you see, to give in to any element of salvation by deeds or good works is to yield ground on one of the most fundamental tenets of the Christian faith. That's why Paul says, we did not yield Brothers and sisters, it seems probably elementary for many of us who've grown up in the church, but we know this. We are not saved by our good works. We're saved by faith because of God's grace displayed to Christ. He didn't yield an inch, and nor can we. Either salvation is through faith in Christ, or it's another gospel, as Paul accused the Galatians of back in chapter 1. Let us look to to verse 6 and beyond of our our text today. What does the text say? Those who were influential, those apostles in Jerusalem, added nothing to Paul's message. After Paul shared with them the message that he preached, they had no critique. There was no change, no addition, no subtraction to the message Paul proclaimed. Paul's message was 100% correct, because it was 100% from the Lord Jesus Christ who gave it to Paul. I can't say that about a Bible study note if I share it with a godly brother. They will hone it. They will help sharpen it. John, you missed the point. John, what about this text? None of that occurs here. Paul shares his message and the apostles say, that's correct. So there is lockstep agreement here. What does the scripture tell us further here? The scriptures say that when the apostles saw that Paul had been entrusted with the apostolic ministry to the Gentiles, that is, the uncircumcised, those who are not Jews, just as Peter had been entrusted with the apostolic ministry to the circumcised, that is, the Jews, 
there was a recognition that he who worked through Peter also worked through Paul. The Lord was clearly working through these men in the same gospel message to two different groups of people, but two different groups of people who equally needed salvation through faith in Christ. Their message was the same because their author was the same. Their message was not man's gospel. It was the message of Christ. Verse 9 tells us that when James and Cephas, that is Peter and John, recognized this, they gave Paul and Barnabas the, quote, right hand of fellowship. Now it's worth noting that this right hand of fellowship is not some sort of an ordination process. The apostles in Jerusalem were not sending Paul and Barnabas with their blessing. Paul and Barnabas didn't need approval. They were already doing gospel ministry. They had been for more than a decade. Remember the words of Christ after he calls Paul on the Damascus Road. Paul is a chosen instrument by the Lord. No, this right hand of fellowship is an expression of loving support interest in the gospel work of the Gentiles that Paul and Barnabas were doing. James, Peter, and John recognized that the Lord was working through Paul and Barnabas. They're joyed by that. They support it. Quite simply, some are tasked with reaching the Jews. Some are tasked with reaching the Gentiles. But all are tasked with the work of sharing the gospel. In fact, we, we see in our text today that James, Peter, and John's only suggestion, they had no corrections for his ministry, they had no corrections for his message. Their only suggestion to Paul and Barnabas during their time in Jerusalem is that they remember the poor. And Paul says that this was something he already had a heart to do. Dear ones, it's worth noting here that we often see the work of the gospel paired with the caring for our physical needs. There is no greater need than the spiritual needs of those who are without Christ. But let us also not forget the words of James chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warm and filled. Without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? Paul and Barnabas were called to preach the gospel but they were reminded to not let their words be full with their actions empty. The late J.C. Ryle, a 19th century preacher and Bible commentator, said this, quote, How many are rich towards themselves, but poor towards God? How many never give a farthing to do good to the bodies and souls of men? And have such people any right to be called Christians in their present state of mind? It may be well doubted. A giving Savior should have giving disciples. End quote. This is a good reminder for every believer. Let us care for people's greatest needs, their spiritual poverty. But let us not ignore those physical needs that we could help with. Moving forward in our text, beginning with verse 11 of chapter 2. 
we now move from the church at Jerusalem, which gave Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, and we move on to the church at Antioch. Here, Paul tells of a situation that occurs where the Apostle Peter walked out of step with the gospel, and the Apostle Paul corrected him publicly. Here, Paul states that Peter came and visited the church in Antioch. Acts chapter 11, verse 26, tells us that in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. That's this church. That's the church at Antioch, and Peter came to visit it. Paul states that Peter here embraced his Christian liberty. He was eating and fellowshipping with uncircumcised Gentile believers, likely eating many of the things that he couldn't eat otherwise, probably enjoying Uh, all the Old Testament things that he was not allowed to eat, pork and rabbits and all all those requirements, embracing the liberty he had in Christ. These were things he couldn't do by the Jewish tradition, but things through faith in Christ that he was able to do. Because for all who believe by faith in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, the law, our purity, our cleanliness is kept perfectly by Christ's work and not our own. Yet the scriptures say that when Jews arrived from James, Peter pulled back and he separated himself from the Gentile believers because he feared the circumcision party. One day, Peter is eating at a table with fellow believers, and the next, he is hypocritically disfellowshipping his Gentile brothers, denying one of these fundamental truths of the gospel. And that's this, that there are not different classes of Christians. There are not Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. There are not circumcised Christians and uncircumcised Christians. There are simply those who believe in Christ, having placed their faith in his work on Calvary. His blood has paid their debt, and they now call him Lord and Savior. That's the only kind of Christian. I wonder how often we make distinctions among Christians. Not only did Peter respond in hypocrisy, but scripture makes it clear that by his falling out of step, his falling out of line with the gospel, the other Jews who were present there at this meal, at this potluck, if you will, joined in his hypocrisy. Scripture says it so that even Barnabas was led astray. And by their actions, the gospel was all but tarnished. The 17th century Bible minister, Matthew Matthew Henry, wrote these words regarding the situation with Paul and the other Jews' hypocrisy. Quote, Here note the weakness and inconstancy of the best of men when left to themselves, and how apt they are to falter in their duty to God out of an undue regard to the pleasing of man. End quote. Gentile believers who had been taught that they were saved by faith in Christ alone were then made to feel like lesser Christians, second-class citizens, because they didn't observe certain rules. Based on what we know from Peter, James, and John giving Paul and Barnabas the right hand of ministry to take the gospel to the Gentiles and to not compel Titus to be circumcised, we can safely say that Peter's failure to walk in the gospel here in this situation in Antioch 
was not out of ignorance. Rather, it was a cowardice act, fearing judgment from the Judaizers. Scripture tells us that Paul rebukes Peter in front of everyone because Peter's refusal to eat with the Gentiles. Peter was implying that Jewish law made one cleansed. And it was being implied by his actions that the Gentiles who did not observe all the rules and the laws were not cleansed, despite faith in Christ. When the gospel becomes about anything but Christ, it becomes about works. How important it is for every Christian to grow in our courage to stand up and defend the gospel. Whether that opposition comes from outside or even inside the church. Peter bowed to public pressure of the circumcision party. Which caused Paul to need to stand up and defend the truth of the gospel. So we move forward in Galatians chapter 2, the, the final section of text today. The Apostle Paul now comes to a pivotal point that he's been preparing to make. Look with me at verse 15 and 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Here Paul is reminding that even the Jews know that a person is not justified by works. Yet Peter needed to be reminded of this. The circumcision party needed to be reminded of this. And dare I say it, often... We, too, need to be reminded of this. Here Paul is using in this text the word justified. This is a really important word, and it's one that we need to understand. Uh, I often, in my home, use a simple children's catechism to help teach my kids short biblical truths in the form of question and answer. Uh, a catechism for boys and girls by the late Errol Hulse is the one that we use in our home. And it gives this helpful question and answer for justification. Question, what is justification? Answer, it is God regarding sinners as if they had never sinned. It is God regarding sinners as if they had never sinned. You see, when Paul says that no one will be justified by works of the law, but only by faith in Christ... He is saying no one will be regarded by God as if they had never sinned except those who place their faith in Christ. Do you see the, the, the two sides here? Faith in Christ and works. It's one or the other. Romans chapter 3 verse 20 says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's what the law does. The law helps us see that we are sinners. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. 
Paul's point here in this final section of chapter 2 is that no man is justified. That is, no man is made right with God by the law. Neither the Jews nor the Gentiles. While the apostle's opponents that he's been writing this whole defense so far against the circumcision party promoted placing one foot squarely in the observance of the law and the other foot squarely by faith in Christ, Paul's point is that even for the Jew, the law never saved because no one can keep it. Thus trying to keep it, even while claiming faith in Christ, I believe in Christ and I'm going to do these things, only reveals what a lawbreaker you are. So what does the text say in verses 19 and 20? For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says, for through the law I died to the law. Well, what, what does that mean? What is being said here? Well, what is being said here is that in Christ's death, the believer's debt is paid in full. And death now no longer has a claim on him or her. The debt is paid in full. So we are now dead to the law because that is paid for. It's done. It's over. For the Christian, we die to the law and live to Christ. Not only was Christ crucified in the believer's place, but in, for the believer's... Not only was Christ crucified in the believer's place... But the believer's life of sin was also crucified with Christ. Christ does not die so that the sinner may go on living the same life of sin. Rather, for the Christian, it is now Christ who lives. And I now live a life of dependence on Christ, yielding to his will. It is no longer I who live a life of fear and punishment of the law, because I'm dead to that. But I live a life of love for him who loves me and laid his life down so that I may live. I love these words from the Apostle Paul. I'm going to read them again. They're that good. I have been crucified with Christ. My sinful life has been crucified. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in my flesh, in my body, I live by faith in Christ, in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In the final verse of Galatians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says this, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Dear ones, the grace of God is the gift of salvation. By faith in Jesus when man attempts to earn God's grace, man voids out, man nullifies that which is by grace alone. If it is grace and works, then it is no longer grace alone. And if it is not grace alone, then it could be earned by works. And if it could be earned by works in any way at all, it can't, but if it could, 
then why did Christ die? Do you see the point that the Apostle Paul is making here? The good news of the gospel is that Christ did it all. We believe by faith through grace in Christ, Christ's death in our place, who alone was able to keep the law perfectly for his people for all time. Man could never keep the law. And to try to goes against every ounce of the work that Christ has already completed. Brothers and sisters, may we never grow tired of hearing that it is not man's works. God saves sinners by grace alone, through faith in Christ. So now what, how do we apply what we've read today? I have two application points for us to consider. First, let's look at the Apostle Peter in Antioch. Are you ever guilty of trying to please or appease man, even if it comes at the expense of what you know to be true? For Peter, he compromised on the truth of the gospel because he feared upsetting the circumcision party. Do you ever compromise on the gospel? Do you compromise on the truth of God's word? with or around others to avoid upsetting them. The Apostle Paul reminded us in the text today when he described how he handled the Judaizers. What did he say? He said, To them we didn't yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved. If you've compromised on the word of God, if you've compromised on the gospel in our day and age where it is increasingly unpopular, I would encourage you to call out to God. He is faithful to forgive. Peter compromised because of the circumcision party. But I would encourage you this morning that as we think about the Apostle Peter, after his failure at the church in Antioch to walk the gospel, the Lord gave Peter another opportunity in Acts chapter 10. He would go on, Peter would, and would preach the gospel and baptize an entire believing household of uncircumcised Gentiles. The story of Cornelius the centurion. Aren't you glad we serve a merciful and forgiving God? If you, like Peter, have walked not in step with the gospel, call out to God. He is gracious to forgive. In our second application point, the Apostle Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Brothers, sisters, does this describe your life? Is your life crucified, dead to sin, and now it is Christ who lives in you? What about your personal goals, your interests, your desires? Are they surrendered to the will of him who now lives in you? Brothers and sisters, dead men and women, people who are crucified, do very little on their own. Who lives and shines forth in you? Is your life crucified? Is it Christ who now lives and reigns in you? Finally today, if you have questions about faith in the Lord Jesus, and what it means to be crucified with him, dead in sin but alive to Christ. I would love to talk with you after service. I know Pastor John White would as well. 
In fact, anyone here with a, a green lanyard on, I know would be happy to speak with you. Don't leave here today if you have questions without uh, talking to one of us. We would love to help you understand the truth of the gospel more. Would you join me as we pray? Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you that salvation is not by our works, for by that no man would be saved. Father, thank you that it is by Christ's perfect work that we can be counted righteous by his fulfillment of what we could never do. Lord, I pray that you would help us to live by faith in your son and not by our own vain efforts to keep the law. God, help us to rightly see ourselves as fallen, as sinners in need of your grace and mercy and to lean solely upon Christ's work. Lord, we praise you. We ask that you would be with us this day, that you would be glorified as we go forth from here, that we would shine you brightly in our community, among our friends, among those we will gather with. Father, take us from here today. Be with us. Lord, if it be your will, bring us back again next week together. For your glory, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week. If you have any questions about anything you just heard or if we can pray for you, please contact us at info at Until next time, stay in God's word.